Hello, and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today we're talking with Simon Dennis, BSC, about his work on the Hulu program Candy, which is a lot of fun, great show if you haven't seen it. Um, Simon's awesome. We, we do a lot of uh, nerding out, as it were, on this one, as we are wont to do, um, you know, talking about the craft of cinematography as well as, uh, you know, things you do and don't do, a little bit um, a little bit of extra David Fincher uh, standing. <laughs> again as we are want to do um and uh a little surprise <laughs> i snuck it in on him but uh we got to talk about doctor who a little bit because he shot an episode of doctor who and i'm a big uh whovian as it were so um yeah this, this i absolutely loved this conversation which again for this program is not rare but um a lot of fun and i think you're gonna enjoy it so i'm gonna let you get to enjoying it so uh please enjoy <laughs> My conversation with Simon Dennis, BSC. So the way that we usually start all these podcasts is, is kind of just by asking um, how you got into the creative field. Were you always a visual person? Did you always, you know, love movies and come from that? Or were, did you, were you like an architect first? Or how, how did that kind ah, of come about? Well, that's a great guess. Actually, I wanted to be a graphic designer when I left school back in the day. Um which I sort of pursued and I went on a graphic design course and which is kind of tentatively linked to advertising, I guess. So in a way I was sort of edging towards filmmaking and I always loved films. Movies mm. were my passion. Um, so I remember when I was at art school, I was doodling a lot, uh, like movie posters, you know, I, was, I think I was even storyboarding stuff. Uh, I was obsessed with Blade Runner at the time, I remember. Um, sure. Yeah, and I, I kind of, long story short, I sort of, one of the part of the remits of this course was to do a little 20 second video. I mean, literally like a, you know, what was it? VHS cameras we had. Yeah. Um, so I kind of did that and I felt like, Oh, this is kind of interesting. And it's a long pathway I took, but I went and basically to two film schools. I went to an art, art, you know, like an audio visual course. And then I went to more of an official film course in Scotland where initially I was going to be like, I want to be a director. Everyone wants to be a director. And then uh, I knew nothing about cinematography. Didn't even know that it existed. I thought the I thought the director shot, you know. Yeah. So I part of the remit of that course was to sort of do a little, you know, uh, everyone kind of basically meddled around and played in different every kind of department, as it were. So sound and hair and makeup and up. So part of that was to actually do a little uh, like a cinematography module, and I was like a kind of light bulb literally went in my head and literally went on set. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I realized then I was a little, I'm kind of a timid person, you know, I'm introverted, but I was like, I don't think I've cut out to be a director, but this cinematography thing is kind of cool. So I bought a 60 mil camera with all the money I had and started shooting. And then, um, you know, I graduated, I started shooting music videos with my friends and shot my first movie 20 years ago. 20 years ago, uh, for David McKenzie, you who you may know of. He did Hello, High Water mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and then I sort of just snowboarded, really. I just sort of was just sleeping on many couches, you know, earning probably no money, but I was very passionate and I loved uh, I could whatever I could do to get another piece of my reel together, you know, and you just, you know, persistence, isn't it, in the industry, yeah. persistence. So I just, I just, I was very persistent, you know, I just, Email, well, whenever email was invented, you know, back and make him show my age now. But uh, yeah, so that was it. I mean, now I'm 
up until about five years ago, I was shooting a bunch of great stuff in the in Europe. I'm from England, and um, yeah, I got an email from a completely random email from a DP that was working on Ryan Murphy shows, and that led to Ryan Murphy shows, which were done six of, and um, here I am. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's two things you touched on there. One, um, that whole like every I think everyone starts that way thinking they want to people who want to get into film start thinking oh I want to be the director because you just assume it's like the director yeah and everyone else (laughs) you're like I want to make the movie yeah yeah the general is you know yeah the general like you know you 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 look up to that kind of mantle and that that image of a what you know and I I knew what I knew who Steven Spielberg was and everyone knew and it's like he's literally about to say yeah 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 I mean that's the classic but um yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I used to be, in, I used to sort of dabble in editing as well. That was my other sort of sidebar. I, I sort of weirdly ended up cutting a movie that I shot. They fired the editor. It was a long story, but and the director was like really, you know, like, sort of, he was just in a tight spot. So I said, well, I'll come, I'll come in. So I started cutting this movie, <clears throat> and I, I started cutting all the pretty shots together. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my work, you know. And this was a really fascinating learning curve as being an editor is you start to then show scenes to the director and they'll be like, mm, something quite off about this. And I was like, oh, uh, maybe I should cut in the best performance. Maybe, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. it seems obvious, but at the time I was just, le- it was a big learning curve. So I've also got an editing background. So when I come on any production, any set, I, I hope I'm really useful to a director that, to have that kind of background as well, albeit, you I- know, things yeah no that I've, that's been parroted numerous times on this podcast is like how yeah being an editor absolutely makes you a better tp absolutely i mean it, it, you can kind of it's like chiseling away at the importance you know you, you kind of get to the you kind of peel back all the layers to what's really freaking important about what you're shooting and what you end yeah. up even considering it's funny you see being in an edit, editing bay you would just tough out shots without even cutting them in. It's like, ah, no. But so you realize the importance of coverage, which I hate the word of, but coverage is, you know, it's getting less and less of a coverage type world we live in now. We're living in a very cinematic TV universe. So it's very exciting. Mm. Yeah. The, the shoot the shit out of it and hope for the best in the edit. Right. It's definitely something that, uh, I wouldn't say I learned in film school like it wasn't taught to us, but it was. But as students, we were like, well, we'll just shoot every angle as much as we'll do the whole scene 15 times from 15 different angles. Yeah. Two takes, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because the process of editing is obviously a collect, you know, is it you're receiving a collection of decisions and those collection of decisions can be everything, you know. I, I was talking to a deep a camera operator friend who's on a show right now, and some directors have still got that muscle memory of just shooting the wides, the mid wides, the overs, the singles, the insert. You know, you can do compulsive all that. filmmaking. Yeah, but I the thing about it is, is I think you know a lot of directors say that their, their work is made in the edit room, which is I think totally fine. I think as long as the edit is very disciplined, so it doesn't show that kind of mass, it just shows the decisions of they've maybe just taken 10% of what you shot, but because you've shot what you've shot, they've got every option. Whereas I personally love to just try and keep it kind of very lean. Um, yeah. I mean, in fact, one of the episodes of Candy, 
uh, was with a director called Ben Sevenoff, who is was not he's an operator for a number of years, and most notably on um, Ozark, which as oh, I, I just interviewed um, Carl Dennis. Right. No, you're wait, hold on. You're, <laughs> that's your last name. No, um, no, no. Uh, uh, the guy, the DP from Ozark. Okay, Blanking yeah. Out his name right now. But well, it's, it's, a, it's a razor sharp show. Yeah, very, yeah. very little camera movement. It's all about great framing and very sort of specific choices. And uh, Ben was interesting because he said to me, "I'd sooner spend two thirds more time lining up two thirds less coverage, as in you'd focus on just the needs that you need within." I mean, say a scene would be maybe four shots. You can do it. Yeah. You do one. You know. But he would be like, I think this scene is just this and this and that little insert. And I was like, great. So he would just spend much more time building those important frames than spending less time on a lot of frames, which is, I think, well, is the true craft of filmmaking, really. Yeah. Well, it's also like, a, um, you know, in, in any creative industry, let alone film, there's there's an element of fear. You know, you don't you don't yeah. get really, you know, that bite at the apple. And yeah, so, well, yeah, exactly. That's what the, the opera I just spoke about in that thing. He said that the director was sort of scared. He, he was like, I've, I don't think I've got enough. It's like, well, you've already got the wide and the medium and the close up and the overs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, to me, it's each, each to your own. You know, the discipline of filmmaking, I, I think it's just personal. But I, I, I've, the more I've been on set, the more I like the, the language of, um, I wouldn't say it's even being daring or taking risks. It's just being respectful to what you're shooting. It's like, you you know, I, I mean, I actually remember I did a show called Piggy Blinders in the UK and Tom Hardy's in that. And uh, the first day with Tom, we had this um, director was like, I want to do a steady cam shot following. I'm going to be on the back of Tom, his character, and I'm going to follow him down through all these. It was in a um, underground brewery. Mm. Uh, and it was probably about, I don't know, 40 seconds of screen time before he even does the first line that's in the script. So already I was like, they're never going to use this shot. Right. And, and Colin was like, oh, let's see, you know, and they used the shot. And it's it, it's 40 seconds of screen time that TV is back. I mean, that was a few years ago now. So now it's not necessary about being like cutting a lot of stuff out in order to fit it into a box because that's what they basically do because it's all transmitted. Right. Now, because of streaming, everyone doesn't really know this. Well, you are knowing it, but every single episode is a few minutes here, a few minutes there. Right. So you're watching a new language now, which is really, I, I find quite exciting. Yeah, you definitely do see. It's kind of a bummer as a viewer sometimes because you're like, wait, this episode, you you know, you're waiting once a week and you're like, this one's only 32 minutes. Yeah. The last one was 59. <laughs> like, I mean, what a, you know, Mandalorian, man. That that, yeah. that show was like, I mean, how how edible was that? Show? I mean, you could watch that show in one evening. Like, that, you know, what is oh, it? I did. 30 <laughs> minute episodes. I mean, they're like, they really kind of went tight, you know, in a in a very like digestible way, I guess. But, yeah, it, but I, it didn't even feel short in some cases. But um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like definitely an exciting time. I was gonna say that show. Um, I just finished watching all of Picard and Halo. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, which, by the way, yeah, <laughs> I was I was watching the trailer for Candy. I haven't had a chance to watch the actual show, and I was like, "Is that Master Chief? 
He's got a mustache. Like. Oh. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, isn't it? He's a good actor. Um, but oh, that that did bring up a point about what you were saying about you know, uh, kind of being more considered about your framing and all that. Is um, I, I just read a quote recently that I thought was kind of apropos, and it was like the actor more or less only has to nail it once. And the crew has to nail it every single time. Every, yeah, that's a famous quote. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. is it? Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't know which film. There was a famous filmmaker that said that, and I'm, it's, um, yeah. I, I kind of have a similar one that I take away as DP, and and I don't, and again, I, I don't know who ever said this. I read this somewhere many years ago. He said that there's good lighting, there's bad lighting, and there's the right lighting. And, and uh, I think that was Gordon Willis. It probably was, and he's my hero. So, and like you know, he, a cool, talking about a disciplined filmmaker, you know, he was like one of the most. Well, I mean, there's there's probably every reason why dark cinematography evolved because of him. You know, yeah. everyone still looks up to and still studies his work. I mean, you, I still try to figure out which grid cloth he used and diffusion. Yeah. It's like what filtration he used but apparently it's it's in his coffin you know it's <laughs> yeah well and uh you know that's funny i was talking to jeff cronenwentz and he was kind of oh my god I don't yeah. he's uh, another one of my heroes yeah absolutely oh i i i actually during the uh not recorded part of the podcast this is a little peak for anyone listening but i i was kind of like hey man i'm not gonna lie i'm i'm a little freaked out because because he like informed my my uh cinematography like uh, a, a bunch of people did but he yeah. definitely has a large chunk of it yeah so and i was like that of course you know so like yeah and so i i wanted i was like i hope this doesn't feel like an interrogation because i already had everything i ever needed to ask him just in my head you know a lot of times yeah. i meet dps i don't really know their work and i have to right. do some research for him i'm like i've got every american cinematographer you've ever been interviewed in, you know <laughs> yeah um it's but funny. he was saying I, I, sorry, oh go ahead no, I was going to say, I, I actually met, so I never really try to like to meet my heroes, but I was at the ASC Awards earlier this year and Jeff was there and I was sat at the Panavision table and um, Dave from Panavision was like, oh, hey, Jeff, come over here, come over here. And like, I was like, what? And there he was right two feet from me. And I was like, oh my God, don't screw this up. And, and I, I was just like, I'm a massive fan. You're my hero. And he's like, he's, and again, it's such nice. It's so nice to meet cinematographers out there that, you know, to this day are very kind of like still grounded and down to earth. And he's like, don't be stupid. Don't be That's stupid. exactly what he told. He was like, uh, right. he was like, shut the fuck up, man. I'm, I'm a human being like you. Like, yeah, yes, I've shot freaking amazing shit. But uh, that, that was kind of a cool moment. Yeah. No, I, w- I won't say what he told me, but basically he was like, yeah, I've, I said that to someone before and, and uh, I felt dumb. <laughs> Right. So don't don't worry about it. You're good. And I was like, yeah. okay, thank you. But uh, in in our conversation, he was saying that he was kind of lamenting dark cinematography for darkness' sake, mm. um, because it is so. You know, people like Gordon Willis and and t- kind of him uh, really have put that image of like that is cinema. You know, I was just talking to a, my friend Joey Femelli, um about lenses, and uh, I was like, really, your lens choice. Uh, something that that um, Matthew Duclos said was there's no bad lens. There's only the right lens for the right job. Right. And I and, you know, format and, and which lens you pick and, and the lighting is kind of informed by everything prior. There's no wrong way to use an anamorphic. You can use an anamorphic for a comedy mm-hmm. if you want. Mm-hmm. You just tend to not. It doesn't fit yes. the audience brain. 
And so that darkness cinematography is one that I think none of us have left because it's just so good. It just feels correct. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I also believe the, you know, I mean, there are some filmmakers, DPs that take the same lighting package or camera package or light, lens package through every show because it's sort of what they love and what they dig. But I'm more of a let's try things out and, like you say, find the right lens for the show rather than saying, well, I've got a bunch of great anamorphic lenses that I own. I'm just going to take it on the show. Hopefully, you know, sure. it should, you know, if it, I'm shooting it, so it should it should work. But um, I don't know. My discipline is a bit more like. Uh, I mean, I remember, in fact, it's interesting because Roger Deakin spoke about this. I mean, he's, I think he did one anamorphic movie and then the rest of his career is spherical, which is, again, that's his MO, you know? Yeah, cleanliness. Yeah, he doesn't like flares, he doesn't like, you know, there's a lot of things that we do and do not like, but I think that the taste and the language of what you're shooting should be apt to the story not the lens and the camera and what have you know well and we all love a kit rental but uh we do there's 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 kind of a narcissism to that yeah it's it's like you i don't know it's a lot of people own their own stuff and i kind of respect that but i'm sort of the only thing i own is uh, a remote head because i oh. just take, take it on to a show and that's always a useful tool but yeah yeah interesting i mean also like the language of uh, i actually remember there was a really great um laszlo kovacs was brought in to shoot um ghostbusters right and mm. if, you might be conscious now that you've said all this about if you see ghostbusters he said to ivan Reitman, he's like well i'm not really a bright comedy kind of dp and he's like no 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 i i don't want to shoot ghostbusters like a comedy i want to shoot it like a atmospheric movie that happens to be funny. Yeah. And I did, that was an intro. I mean, I, I was like, when I read that, I don't think I was conscious of it watching that. And I, I remember going to see it as a kid. Um, and I remember loving it. And I remember thinking like, Oh, this is kind of like cool, you know, like this is yeah, a yeah, yeah. cool looking movie. Uh, so I find yeah, genre versus lighting is a very interesting tool. And I think you have to just take it project to project. I mean, on candy, it was a, I just knew straight off the bat that I knew that I, I knew that it would be a very still camera movement piece. It was more about camera framing, and I also knew that I was really keen to try and shoot much more of a cubist approach. More, we actually pitched one three three as a ratio, but the studio were like, mm. "So it's it's they're not ready for that yet. <laughs> not quite ready for that kind of universe." Uh, uh, they're okay with the bars in the top and bottom, but not left and right. Uh, yeah, so we ended yeah. up we ended up shooting candy on one six six, which I think was a sort of sweet spot. And um, you know, the the mad reference that I speak to people about this on candy was Napoleon Dynamite because it's got this. Oh. You know, the show's quite quirky. You know, it's kind of culturally it's nineteen seventy eight into eighty, and so it's it's uh, you know the outfits, the hair. The big glasses, the jumpsuits. Uh, even though Napoleon Dynamite's not set in 1980, it feels like it is. But yeah. I was also reaching for that what Napoleon Dynamite, which is more like the portrait photography, even on wides. Um, so I was sort of going down that path, which I thought was kind of right. And yeah, kind of you know what's funny is uh, I, I was going to get to this in kind of the back half, but we're already here. Uh, and especially talking about Jeff, I, I feel like it's easy to 
ascribe any sort of 70s murder thing to Zodiac, but it does have very Cronenwinthy Zodiac kind of vibes yeah. to it. That's, was that I mean, like a touchstone as well, or was that just sort of it? Well, my my uh, no, uh, I mean sensibilities. I, I, I still love Zodiac. I mean, I'm an absolute true crime nut, and I I kind of think that's. I mean, I, I, I'm still fascinated by that movie because it was shot on the on the very infantile sort of digital system. Yeah, Viper, right? Viper with like Digi Primes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Harris Savidas and Fincher, and it's it's quite a deep focus show like the movie is not necessarily stylized in that way but it does and it obviously has an amazing uh i mean what i always pull from that movie is i love how they use the color yellow as there's, there's a yes. yellow theme that pops out on uh, which i you know listen i i could talk about this for hours because i know the finch is obsessed with you know all the president's men and and Alan J. Pakula, like it's his work is all you know, all over Finches. Which By the is, way, you're welcome to talk about this for hours. Please do. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I, I do find like the, the the decor and how you know the costume. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I mean, it wasn't a conscious decision for me. I've just had it always wedged in my head, like as a great yeah. freaking movie. Um, and it's you know, it's a it's a movie about dialogue. Dialogue is a danger. I mean, there's no there's no serial killer in it. The serial killers in the dialogue you, you know what yeah. I mean? never freaking meet him i think it's just genius but but no i think that yeah definitely that kind of period i mean i mean the, the other work i was looking at was it was more about because i work from the inside out when i'm doing a show so i don't tend to kind of immediately go out and watch or look at stills or paintings but for this one i was looking at the crime scene material that, that you they're very, very graphic and disturbing. Sure. I kind of felt like I had to look at it. And, you know, to me, I felt like I was starting to work on already the color themes because there was lots of, you know, it's almost like Polaroid work back in then. It was like very vibrant reds and yellows and blues and stuff. And so I was like then drawn to um, more work like William Eagleston um, and his work. Yeah. Two of his books over there. Yeah. yeah. See, one of my heroes. But like he used the dye, he used the thing called um, Kodachrome dye transfer. So all of his famous work has got a very, like the reds really fucking pop, like leap out of the the image, you know. Yeah, is it? Uh, yeah, portraits. This book for anyone yeah. uh, for anyone watching. This is a great. Tim oh, Ives okay. turned me on to this. I'll get um, my copy and we can just go through it. Yeah, we'll just share it. <laughs> I tell you, I did an interview with Tim Ives and I asked him if he had any, like, what he likes to reference. And he came back with a stack like this and just walked me through page by page. Like, yeah. this is a photo I love. This is a photo for like 20 minutes. It was the yeah. best. Um, and Tim did the other show. Tim, Tim's done the other candy show. Oh, really? Well, HBO have done the same story. It's called uh, Love and Death. And I, I funny because I, I emailed him on prep and, uh, you know, I'm just reaching out because I've never, because we shot in Atlanta, right? I've never shot in Atlanta. And so I was reaching out. I think it was a connection with something he did. And he emailed me and he was like, oh, ha, 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 I'm doing the other show. Um, <laughs> you know, all the best. And then earlier this year at the ASC Awards, I saw him and we had a big hug and a, like, hey, you know, and he was still shooting. It is. His show's like twice as long. It's like 10 episodes. And, um, but I think a couple of teasers were out and he was like, oh yeah, it's, it's looking great, man. That, that's, that's the great thing about DPs, you know, other DP was doing exactly the same story. Um, but yeah, Tim's fantastic. You know, he's, did you a, guys, 
Oh, sorry. I was, I was going to say, did you guys kind of talk about your looks and try to like diverge at all or maybe try to symbolize or just no, no discussion? No, no discussion. I mean, I, I only until I met him recently after I'd finished, but um, I, I would suspect he's gone down. Oh, well, I do know. I think technically he shot on the Panas Beats, which is what I've shot on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I, yeah. I mean, I feel like, I feel me, if, if I can speak for him, we've got the tastes are kind of similar. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like he would have definitely gone down that same avenue. The, the thing that I didn't want to ever do was like the chocolate box thing of like filtration. I didn't right. I felt like it. I felt like filtration, particularly on any era, um, uh, would have been too sort of processed. And so what we ended up doing was Panavision were doing the kit and Dan, Dan Sasaki, the lens wizard, um, he detuned my lenses. Um, so we never went on filtration. It was all like, it's almost like you put, you know, you sandpaper the image a little bit. It's a bit more, well, I, I described as being, uh, more, um, like vinyl, like a vinyl record. Right. And, and actually I think I just sent him the William Eagleston stuff and he's like, got it. And he sent me, they actually did in-house tests for me cause I was over in Atlanta and, um, I, I just got these tests. I was like, Bro, nailed it. There you go. So that that's what we did. Yeah, we sort of detuned for a slightly, yeah, just like analog. I mean, there's there's record. I mean, there's a scene where Candy's listening to a David Soul record. You know, and, and it's it's interesting because pop culturally wise and also culturally, like the '80s is interesting because I was chatting to somebody earlier on the podcast and he said there's a big difference between 1980 and 1986. Like 1980. Right. It's practically, you know, I mean, literally the late seventies, but like you're talking about a turning point into new era. Whereas the eighties, it was already finding where it was, you know, back to the future. I can think of, you know, lethal weapon. But um, yeah, so I find I found that that kind of you the, the detuning was the first time I was like, yeah, that's not that's not filtrate, and let's just try and bake it in. And um, I've I've found myself that I I've kind of started to. Maybe because I, I tend to shoot large format now and, I, and there's just a lot more like data to work with. It's like I mm -hmm. thought that the bigger sensor was going to give me sharpness, but it doesn't. I, I, it get, when the image uh, gets downscaled like that, it becomes smooth and you don't really need filtration. I, anymore. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there's a miscommunication. Like you think like you get these big screens and the, the particularly makeup people, they're like they can. I mean, because I go, I sit on set with a 55 inch OLED. Uh, like D DIT station that mm. is in this roadie box and it just pops up and I've got full color control. And Oh, you, you know, do your own color on it? We like do, live grading? The last three shows I've done live color. Awesome. So, you know, it's it's my, Spencer Schwartz, who is my brilliant, you know, uh, partner in crime, DIT. He, he's just a big brain. And he built, he built this, um, if you want, I can send you stills if you want to add it to this. But Please. It's uh, it's it's yeah, it's a fifty-five inch calibrated OLED. So we have quad quad splits. We have three we have three cameras on this show. So we have three cameras. It's all calibrated, and then we have live color. So basically, I'm watching it. In fact, I've got two TVs, the same TVs here. So I'm watching it exactly as it should be calibrated to the nation. You know, when yeah. You watch. Um, and of course, like it's really useful if you're doing a show like this, which is so color coordinated. Mm. So we, we basically started to kind of enhance like the reds, the kind of burnt yellows. I mean, when I read the script, actually, the, the color yellow leapt out to me 
immediately. And um, and also I got thinking, you know, the, the show's called Candy. So there's like a candy color kind of color theory in there. It's not like, you know, it's a little bit, you know, it's saturated for sure. But, uh, and then I use, and I would use um, to sort of bind the story together. I used um, sodium vapor. I remember as a kid back in then, you know, those old dirty sodium vapor. I love lights. that color. It's so good. And when it comes in, it's so kind of dirty. So I ended up like using that to bind together the houses and the, and the suburban life. Um, no, there's a scene where Betty's like in bed with her husband and, you know, and you sort of then cut to Candy at this sort of um, dive bar, like dancing, like, like, um, it's like a disco sequence. And again, it was like matching color themes, like, because I wanted somehow to kind of connect these two rival characters. I mean, they're friends, but they end up being rivals right. because because of an affair, you know, <laughs> because of, you know. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, no, small town. It's in the trailer. It's yes. in the trailer. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's it's. I don't know what we were talking about initially, but yeah, it's. I just love uh, detuning lenses and large sensors yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I think uh, no, and it, and it's funny because like as soon as Dan gets those lenses back at Panavision, he undetunes them and just destroys all the paperwork. Like it's like you can't ever find the uh, the Coca Cola formula with that guy. Like he's like the king of lenses. In fact, but that's given, awesome, though. He was given an honorary award at the ASC, which is amazing. And it was, <laughs> we were at the and so David Panavision was like, um, Dan was walking up to go on stage. And he's like, "This is going to be interesting because Dan really doesn't say that much. <laughs> he's a <laughs> quiet guy." But um, yeah, so so yeah, but yeah, we're also going back to like Tim and all that, and William Eagleston, and you know, I think you know. Um, He's always been a sort of great sort of, I, you know, I don't reference him on everything, but I find inspiration in his work. I just love the texture of his image. And, and kind of going back as well to live colors, I, I underexpose all of the neg in the camera. So oh. really nothing should ever peak in any way. I really get like, ugh. I kind of get almost a little sick in my mouth if I see like a really clipping highlight. I just, yeah. so I, basically every, everything I do from the last four or five shows, I've sort of, I've underexposed by almost two stops, like on the raw. And, uh, oh, that's, that's what we were talking about, like resolution as well. Right. So when yes. you get resolution, yes, it does give more clarity, but it gives you more, um, like range to play with. So when I underexpose and it, it's, you're automatically pulling the sensor to a, it's not to a break, breaking point by any means because these cameras are just incredible. I was using the same. They're all nuts. <laughs> oh, the Venice is great. I mean, when you even when you think you've like destroyed the the, the sensor, it's still like hello, I'm clear as hell. But uh, yeah. no, but by, by the time you do that with the detuning and um, you know live color, I hope what I come away with is something that's got a little bit more of a filmic neg. I mean, I was really pushing for. Um, a neck, you know, the show to fill um, somewhere between 16 and 35, you know, it's got a little bit of spit and grit to it. Yeah. The, um, it, it's cool to hear you say that because I've noticed the same thing with more of these modern cameras. I have a C500. This is the most expensive webcam in the world. Uh, <laughs> right. But, uh, but with this camera, especially, I, I think too, with like, especially raw being more accessible, but even these like four, four, four compressed formats and all that, 
you are able like I find I'm putting skin tones at like 50 or under like yeah. ish, you know, whereas shooting film, hell no, you know, classically, you'd want to overexpose skin by about a stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, I wanted to touch on that. Actually, there's two things I wanted to, at the very beginning of this conversation. I said you said two things and I didn't get to the second one. So yeah, yeah. anyone who's bugged about that, I will get to it. But um, shooting fi- you you came up on film. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Kind of going to that Gordon Willis thought and stuff. What is in your mind the difference in the two formats from like kind of a practical shooting aspect and also what is keeping most people let's say shooting digital from finding that more filmic look in your estimation well there's and a, i don't mean photochemical necessarily but uh, you know, yeah. yeah okay well i mean i guess there's the the classic conversation that was out of film versus video or digital and so it was all about um how we try to make digital be simulated to look like film. There was all of that discussion and I'll talk about that, but there's also another really important angle that nobody talked about really was discipline of film. Like um, the fact that the day before shooting at the DP, the the director, the actors, we've got 10 rolls of film to shoot this scene. So your focus, it pushes you into a corner in a great way. Like when I was shooting on film, you'd be damn sure. I, I still remember to this day, um, doing music videos and the day before I would sort of hang out with the director and he would test me on his shot list. He's like, what's the mm. second shot? What's the third shot I've got down there? And, you know, he, he'd shot list the whole thing because he knew that he couldn't dick around, you know? And so that then led to this, uh, a much more different language of creation in filmmakers. So you're more focused, basically. I'm not saying that mm. modern filmmakers now digital are not focused. But I definitely feel people take the foot off the pedal and they can sleep a bit better. You know, Gordon Willis, sorry, Roger Deacon famously said, you know, the, the day I started doing digital, I slept like a baby, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's good. But I just think that people should be a bit more aware about how digital gives you a bit too much freedom to keep rolling or, you know, there's a double-edged sword because keep rolling. It, it depends on what you're doing, really. It's kind of like coverage. Sure. But I think that... Um, yeah, I think I always try to stay a bit more disciplined and just not. And I'm talking discipline as in a, what you how you approach a yeah. given scene. So the day before you do a lot of thinking, a lot of planning, whereas sometimes you're just rolling day to day and you're not even getting time to prep. And you know what I mean? It's a kind of double. It's a sort of vicious circle. So yeah. I'm, I'm talking about this in the sense of like, if if there's a parallel world and that TV show was shot on film and this was shot on digital how different would that show be in its language? And I really find that fascinating, you know. Me I don't too, know yeah. what that would be, but I'd, I'd be pretty sure that there'd be a lot more creative, distinct choices about how they wanted to shoot a scene. And mm. also I think there's just this lovely moment when you hear the camera rolling and actors, the reaction of an actor, uh, I would say is different. Totally. And then, you know, I think if I, if anything, digital has made actors a bit more frustrated because they're like, he just wants to keep rolling. You know, what are we, are we, are we done? Oh, we're going to go for another one. Oh, you know, and it's like, whereas like, I just love the stop and start a film, you know, that lightning a bottle, that moment where it's just happened. You're not going to see it for three days, but I think that's exciting. And I think, 
all of this together is also producing, you know, studios. They everything now has to be kind of so everything's immediate, right? Everything. Right. Producers now see things immediately. Everyone, good or bad, seems to have an opinion about lenses now and cameras. You know, it, this, yeah. I, I find that producers have a little bit more discussion and an opinion about things, which is fine. It's fine, but like ultimately, we got to remember where the craft came from where DPs were completely in control of, of cinema. You know, yeah. nobody knew what that was going to look like until, you know, I remember years ago they, they put, they brought a DP out of retirement to shoot a, a black and white music video. And, um, he was lighting it and they were like, Oh my God, this looks terrible. This looks horrible, like terrible. And then the dailies came in and it looked brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I think that there's that, but going to the other side of it, which is like simulating digital for film. I mean, that's been going for such a long time. I mean, I mean, maybe I think of all the filmmakers on the planet right now, who's consistently very close to a, a sort of a filmic language is probably Fincher. Like this, mm -hmm. the fact that his, he obviously works with top, you know, you know, a-list, you know, Jeff being one of, you know, just top DPs uh, who also appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They really appreciate that level of, of digital cinema. Like, I don't want to call it digital cinema, but that's kind of where we're at. But it's like, um, and, and on Candy, we sort of did a little, tiny little um, film grain. So it was more like a print stock film grain. It's very, it's like 50D, 50, mm. yeah, I think 50D. No, it was, a, it was a print stock. It was very small, but I, I, it was enough for me to kind of go, yeah, it sort of pushed it to, over to the other side. Um, whereas now I kind of look, I get, whenever I see it like a trailer for a new movie and it looks so clean and so pristine and perfect, which is maybe the intention, but I, I, I'm not that person. I still love the 70s, you know. I love the yeah. conversation. I love Taxi Driver. I love you know, anything that Gordon shot, anything that Owen Reutzman shot, you know, back when they were pre-flashing film stock, you know, to get the, the actual exposure they needed. You know, this is not, nothing like that is happening anymore. You can shoot foot candles aren't even being talked about anymore. It's right. like, yeah, it, it's now ISO. You talk about the, what well, the new Sony is now 3,200 base. Yeah. The Venice two. Venice two. I mean, it, I think it's amazing to give filmmakers the ability to shoot on fast lenses and all that and, you know, shoot at candlelight and all that. And of course Kubrick was doing it and he was there the first before everyone else. But yeah, there's, I, I find, I find the texture of film versus digital as an image, very fascinating of what actually makes film look. And I, I remember we were doing the color sessions on Peaky Blinders and the director said to me, I, I don't think it's about contrast. I think it's about midtones. He says, hmm. um, if you actually watch anything, in fact, there's a good friend of mine who shot um, a British TV show, God, she shot on 35, um, Conversations with People, Conversations with Friends. Hmm. And it's shot on film and immediately when you see the trailer, there's there's very little in the way of expression or contrast. It's all about almost, it's almost lower contrast. It's almost like it's, uh, there's obviously a lot of very, um, uh, the highlights are suppressed. But I, I remember back in that color session of Pete Blinders, he was like, I think it's more about charcoal contrast rather than um, like what we thought was the contrast, which is pushing. And, I, and now it's more about pulling. 
the other way, mm-hmm. I think. Um, it's, it's fascinating, really is. Well, and you touch on two things. One uh, that I think is, is relevant is having a palette. Like when you were saying you're given so many options now, like digital allows you to do anything uh-huh. and not to stand Fincher this entire podcast, but it, he's, you know, one of the great touchstones is um, it's about what you don't do. That's going to inform what the audience is going to take in. You know, if you do everything, it's very confusing. You know, so it's yeah. like, what are we not doing? You know, we're not going to use, uh, in your case, um, handheld, you know, whatever. Yes. Yeah. Because um, that's Dogma, not what the show is. Yeah. Dogma rules. It's like, I mean, yeah. I, I'd, I'd sooner go on the road with three lenses and a very disciplined dogma rule than go with like 25 lenses and be like, ah, oh, what? Yeah. Um, yeah. I find that's interesting. I mean, of course, you know, you have to be in the room with like talent. You have to be with a production designer, costume designer, hair, makeup. They, I mean, I've been so lucky on Ryan Murphy shows particularly because he's like the king of, um, you know, expression in a way. It's an explosion of, you know, con- like costumes and color and, you know, all the things that I love. I, I, I'd sooner talk about color than lighting sometimes, you know. I think color theory sure. is much more expressive and, and emotional. I mean, lighting lighting is almost just, just it's almost like just justified by you know, the means of the scene. So if it's a mm. daylight scene and you're inside a house, there's going to be daylight in the house. You know, how contrasty that is, is up to you. But the color of that couch or the color of that tie, you know, to me, that's, these decisions are much more important. And if you're not in the company of these great, incredible departments, then, you know, I mean, I remember way back when I was only given like one wall to shoot against, you know, <laughs> And then slowly I had two walls. And by the time I got to Orion, it was 360. You know, it was, every day was four walls. Um, and now we're, we're working, we're, we're in a world where everything's practical driven. So, you know, it's the whole TV. <laughs> we joke about this sometimes, like TV's like a lamp store sometimes, you know. You, yeah, yeah. I'd, somebody joked about, I love The Crown, but very occasionally you'll see a scene in The Crown and you're like, you pause and go, that's 12 practicals. I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> but but the, at the end of the day, that... In that, each angle, too. <laughs> and, and, you know, you it's 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 that kind of co- creative culture now, like practicals. Was back in the day, what was I watching the other day? That, so I started to do research for this next project I'm on. And, you know, and it was really craft like like it was more expressive lighting and like the practicals were there but the the, the expression of lighting was not necessarily from the practicals whereas if you see i'd say 70 percent, 80 percent of stories on tv right now cinema tv is it's mm-hmm. mostly practicals and, well, and, and the choice of those creative practicals that you use yeah um because one other thing you were saying that i think ties into all this um that i recently I was aware of, but it wasn't um, sort of codified uh, until I saw this, which was, you know, back in the 70s when you're when we're talking about like all this cool kind of experimentations and somewhat in the 90s as well, I've noticed um, new technology seems to come at a time right when everything's getting good. And so the example they used was silent films. The camera was unencumbered by needing the massive ass blimp and all this stuff. So you could get really expressive with the camera and right when silent film really started to come into its stride sound came out and the camera got locked down and there were everything was very static and very mm. you know because they had to, for technical reasons not for creative reasons mm. yeah 
It's interesting because I back then. I mean, it's almost like you could do an analogy of camera shows. If there was a camera show for Hollywood back then, there'd be like seven cameras. And now we've got yeah. like a hundred, right? And then beyond that, there's always new ones every single year, sometimes every six months. So I, I tend to not get too bogged down on like the technical elements of it. That's why I've got an amazing DIT. He teaches me about this. Yeah. And he, he, he talks about knits, you know? I'm like, what's yeah. a knit? I don't know what a knit is. Split um, candles for screens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no. But the thing is, like, that's not really the language of cinematography. Cinematographers need to, like, focus purely on, you know, the story and the emotions and all that kind of the classic stuff. But, yeah, I, it's it's uh, it's definitely – I mean, I still remember, like, when the 5 when the 5G, the 5G generation happened. I, and, and I was like, oh, my God. Uh, and it was interesting because I was still shooting on film at the time. But there was, a, there was a friend of mine, production designer, and she wanted to do this low-budget period movie set in the 30s. And uh, and around that time, everyone was buying their 5D cameras, right, with their little right. super-fast lenses. And I'd say everyone was then going out on the street. It was like most street movies at night, wide open, and they were like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Look at this. So I ended up shooting this uh, movie, like, widescreen on a 5D with very considered static frames, you know, very, you know, almost like a one camera thing. And I was asked to go to a 5D presentation thing. And so I screened a clip of it. And the guy was like hosting it. He was like, he just didn't know what to say. Cause he was like, but that's like, you know, that's like a period movie. What, what, what's with, you know, we've got right. this amazing technology now that goes out and you can shoot an available light. I'm like, is that the point of this? Yeah. Thing? Like, I don't know if that's the point. I, I think it definitely, listen, there's, it's a double-edged sword with what we're talking about because, I mean, go, um, what was it? Francis Ford Coppola, when he was making Apocalypse Now, do you remember he said, oh, there's going to be some fat kid from Iowa who's going to make a work of art with like a little kid phone. Right. And that to me is the analogy of what is going on. I think it's great that there's so many people that can go out and make stuff, you know? I mean, that filmmaker made Tangerine, right? With his, the iPhone. Yeah. Like, to me, it's like opportunities. If if there's great filmmakers and uh, artists and voices out there that uh, basically have a chance to make something rather than they would never have a chance, then that's really great. So I think it's a really double-edged sword. But what comes with it is thousands of other filmmakers that have thousands of this and thousands of... I'm a director, DP, editor, producer, you know? Like yeah, the hyper hyphen it. Yeah, it's great. But I think, you know, I'm like, pick one, <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's I, I'm a DP. I don't want to be a director. I don't want to be, a, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, you know, I've taken on the the DP colorist hyphen it because I really love coloring. I wouldn't say I'm a professional by any means. I have colored a few like features, like indie features and docs and stuff, but it's so fun. But, you know, cinematography is has one foot in post. So it felt like a necessary skill. Yeah. Uh, to have. Um, but, uh, to your point about sort of the democratization of filmmaking, I think one thing that's very often forgotten about is the artist, you know, now, especially, um, I, I hesitate to say the YouTube generation, cause it's like everyone's on YouTube, but so it's not like one group, but let's say the popular, um, filmmaking on, on YouTube or whatever kind of ignores the entire history of cinema 
and is only taking from basically the 5D onward. Yeah. Which might invent its own language maybe in a hundred years when it has enough time, yeah. you know, as film. But I find that kind of frustrating when people go, Oh, I'm a DP. And it's like, okay, cool. Uh, yeah. um, let's talk about the history of film. Like what's your favorite yeah. film? Like, I don't know. Old school. You're like, that's a great film, but yeah. let's talk, you know, let's uh, eat your veggies a little bit. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I know. I, I think, but like, it's secular though. It's, it's like, we still, I mean, we still have to appreciate the fact that yes, there was the Hollywood, period and then there was you know eventually we got to like the french new wave so that they were doing that thing it's not like it's it's like everyone's invited i think to yeah. make but i think you shouldn't do one short film and call yourself a dp that's that's a bit much i mean like you, you have to understand on a lot of stuff but i also go well you know we went through the dogma you know the literal dogma you know the dogma period in the what was it the early 90s mm. where you know uh people would go out with like handicams and, and make a movie and and I, I think that there was this I mean for a moment it was kind of like interesting and exciting and it yeah. was like people like just just having absolute freedom which I think is what people love and uh, and it was going to be the new art form and it sort of didn't it didn't when it didn't go away but it was still a proving factor that it was a new generation of digital artists and filmmakers so I, yeah, I think I I don't want to say that there's right or wrong in any of this. I just do know that my my personal taste is I'm I'm basically got one foot in the old and one foot in the new. I, like I'm right. I'm right in the middle, so I feel quite lucky that I grew up on the '70s movies and appreciated the discipline of that. But it's not to say that people can't pick up, you know, an iPhone and, and make. Now that we've got iPhones with the freaking cinema mode, I definitely. Yeah. Everyone's running out, but uh, I think we need to draw the line on, um, because here's the interesting thing about the film industry, uh, the, there's no door and there's no rule. Like you can make up your own resume. Like, yeah. There's plenty not, of doors. You don't have to go through them. <laughs> you don't have to go through them and, and nobody cross checks your resume. Nobody checks that you've done this. Like you could lie. No one looks for your diploma. <laughs> yeah. And so there's no, well, there's no exam, right? I mean, if everyone was examined in this industry, and, and literally turfed out based on the results. Oh, you got to see minus get out. You know, they, they would, yeah. they, I think it would weed out a lot of things, but also listen, it's the expression of life. You know, we're sort of doing this and we love what we do, but I, I do find it fascinating. Well, that is, I think the, that's the point, especially using dogma as an example is uh, not the Kevin Smith film, the, uh, uh, Lars von Trier and all Lars that. von Trier. Yeah. 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 Um, is that was artists using modern technology to create art versus getting the technology, being very excited about how fun and shiny it is, mm. and then coming up with your artistry afterwards, which yeah. I think is fine. You know, maybe you're fascinated by paints and then you become a great painter, but oftentimes it's the other way. It's, it's, how, how, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like the difference between being a rebel and going out and doing your own freaking thing. Do you think it's a new art form, or you take what is given to you as a digital technology to try and simulate what you love? Yeah, that's the difference. Like to me, I'm not into like being a maverick and doing the newest form of filmmaking. I, I'm I'm thinking like I love, you know. Like we keep talking about Gordon Willis. That's I'm not ashamed to say, and I I will 
keep referencing him. I I still love how he's the thing about it is I find that he's also he was kind of a maverick because he pushed things over the hill into a new arena. Uh, and there's certain filmmakers that occasionally do this that are freaking brave. I mean, I still remember this, to this day, actually, when Seven came out. Oh, uh, yeah. Bleach Bypass was suddenly a Darius. thing. And Darius was like, did, again, I think it was like he was handed the baton from Gordon Willis, you know, and he freaking ran with it. And so occasionally I think doing these things is great, but I think now it's on a level playing field. Like everyone, like you say, TV is, it's TV, Dark for dark sake is not dark. It's not. It to me, there's a difference between gloomy and and badly lit, and and you have to understand darkness to sort of get it right. I mean, producers yeah. just run a mile of like, well, they fire you. Yeah. It's getting less and less, but I I I but I do remember actually, Peaky Blinders was a great because that that the model for that because I I did season two, the model for that on season one, and again this was somebody going out and being brave as George Steele, who's great talent. He DP'd the first one, and that was basically The Godfather and Westerns, right? Mm. And uh, they, he sort of somehow got that made through what is very much a conservative TV place at that time in England. Yeah. And if you'd said The Godfather, you'd literally been thrown out in your ear, like, get out. No, we don't do that. Whereas he sort of did that, and it was a sort of a, a hit, a cultural hit, and then I did season two. When it came to season two, they just said, we want more of that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've got more money. And so I remember I remember that being a turn. You've got point. more money to use less light. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. In fact, you said something earlier, and I find another thing is, um, I you know, I think Greg Frazier said this, uh, amongst other people that he says, it's, it's, and actually Conrad Hall said it as well, is it's not about what you like, it's about what you don't like. And, and, yeah. and th- th- that's a very... It's a scary statement because, like, people get scared on that. You know, we—I I remember years ago going to see a, a movie that Seamus McGarvey had shot. Um, it's at High Fidelity, and I still remember it was one of his first major projects in the U.S. And he did, you know, High Fidelity. I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. Yeah, yeah. it, it, it's you know, is it Jack Black? It's a kind of like a, it's a record store movie. So it's not like you know this or that. It's sort of you know. But he said there was one scene where I, he decided to shoot the characters against a window in silhouette. And the day after he got a phone call and he's like, turn more lights on because we're paying these actors way too much to be not seen. You know, so it, it really depends on how you how much you justify and stick up for um, for it. But I find it's vogue though. Like you'll meet producers and yeah. go, oh, let's do it like Euphoria or let's do it like. I still remember one. Oh, everyone wants to do it like Euphoria right now. Good God. It's shot on film and it's incredibly disciplined, you know? I mean, I think I had a, you know, a corporate client ask for that recently. Yeah, we kind of want it to look like Euphoria. I was like, no, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but then when, when you do it, they'll go, oh, it's a bit this or that. It's like, this is exactly what you asked for, you know? Yeah. So I find that the, the trends in the industry, you know, especially when you said they're about meaning people who are their references are movies from like seven years ago. You know, you're like, I mean, I actually remember I was doing a scene and I had a little hazer and I had this PA that was putting the haze into the set and I'd occasionally go to a reference so he'd know immediately how much to put in because I'm focusing on the lighting and stuff. And I just said to him, oh, this is probably, I think we're going to go for Blade Runner. Like, I mean, it's a classic reference. And he was like, Blade what? 
Oh no! <laughs> it was a kid, you know, and and like that yeah. to me, that sort of part summarizes the cultural thing of, like, uh, yeah. I mean, the history of cinema and the respect for cinema and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it's like, it's it's going to be fascinating to know where we're going to be in ten years. You know. Yeah. Well, and and something that I've always thought about is that kind of keeps me on that, let's say, art, artistic track because I'm uh, the reason I'm I feel free to describe it like this is because I was not an artist at first. I was, I should have got into um, uh, props and special effects. That's really where I, I learned way too late in life that that's what made me excited, you know, uh-huh. way, way cooler to make the lightsaber than to film it yeah. in my head, you know? Right. Um, but uh, to keep me on that artistic track, I think of myself in a lineage, you know, who are the DPs that inform me and how am I going to carry that message on and, 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 insert some of my own mm. you know not just i'm a, i'm i'm not in a vacuum you know right um but also to your point about uh doors and this is that second thing from the beginning of the conversation uh mm. i noticed on your website your reel the last reel you posted was from 2015 yeah uh what do people do now because I, every DP has said reels are dead. There's no point. Everyone's looking at your last project. It's, so yeah. what do people starting or who maybe have, you know, their careers getting going a little bit, how do you combat that? Because a reel at least lets you, I mean, that's the safety of a reel, right? You pick all your favorite shots and you go, look, right. I know what I'm doing. But everyone goes, I don't care what's the last thing you shot. And you're like, oh, it was $1,000 for my friend from college, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is fascinating. Uh, no, the, the, the real thing, absolutely. Uh, to me right now, we live in a name drop generation. Like it, it's basically, if you say I just done Ozark or Euphoria, or it's like people get giddy and go, you know, who we've got, we've got the guy that, um, uh, in fact, we had a, on, on candy, we had a, uh, one of the ADs couldn't stay. Mm-hmm. So that for the last episode they brought in the, and the, like Atlanta was very busy and like the couple of days later, Robin, the showrunner, I was like, Oh my God, you wouldn't believe it. We've got Tarantino's AD, you know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. it's like, you know, and, but it was, you know, it was the AD from Reservoir Dogs. And I, I was like, this guy's going to be a legend. And he was, he was like, <laughs> he's a great guy. But um, I find now that it's it's uh, you know, obviously attention span is like that. You know, I mean, I'm my real my website. I've got hundreds of scenes. Like, if you want to clip, yeah, it. But I think sometimes they they just they they stop at the title. They they mm. literally it's an impressional thing. They'll go, oh, he did Pose, or he did you know, American Crime Story. You know, it's like great, yeah, fantastic. I think it's that kind of generation now, which is fine you know i was actually the other day talking to somebody about reels and like i I mean i was building a reel to get more work right once you're out there and you're kind of going from job to job and you're appreciated you don't need it you definitely don't need it i I think if actually it's the reverse if you do it these days if you put a a montage reel at the front of your web page i i'm not saying that this dp is not inexperienced i'm just saying i think it's great to have like a three minute taster of your work, but you've taken time or you've got somebody to cut that together. Whereas life's moving pretty fast. Now everyone's doing show to show or movie to movie is, you know, if you go on anyone's, you know, if you go on, you know, 
Dan Mendel's website. Like it's like yeah, fucking shot Star Wars. I mean, he doesn't even <laughs> he doesn't even need an a, a website. You know, some of these people don't. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's just text. Dan Middle, I shot Star Wars. I shot Contact. Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Hire> me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so I think, um, yeah, that's my opinion, really. I mean, it's... it's. Uh, Hold on, I got to go edit my website real quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's... it's. I don't know. I just think, yeah, I think it's... I, I, still, I, I still remember coming up over the... Up, up the hill, as it were, in this industry. And I still remember, like, a lot of people kind of even asking me when I was like one third up the hill, like, who have you worked with? Who right. do you know? You know? And I was like, that's not, that's no way to, you can't piggyback on me, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's good for producers of studios cause it's a brand, you know, they kind of know they're getting the goods, you know, yeah. they kind of know that, um, you know, one of my private things I'm I pride myself on is I, I like working fat. I like working at a clip. I don't work fast. That's a sort of a misnomer, but I like working efficient efficiently. I like working with cameras where I can move them, place them from room to room rather than scatter shotting coverage. You know that kind of stuff. That's the thing that I. But I don't tend to kind of. I mean, I can't even remember the last time I was sort of interviewed, which sounds really crazy, but. <laughs> For a job. Um, for a job, yeah. But, uh, you know, you get to a point where people sort of like, I guess you, you sort of like you. And I find this interesting because, like I said earlier, about choosing, say, to shoot all of your movies on, say, G Series Anamorphics, right? That's what I do. That's fine because people think, you know, we're going to get really, really great kind of looking stuff. But, um, yeah, I think if you. Um, you have to sort of be a bit varied and, you know, be a bit more accessible. Um, whereas some people pick people purely on their brand. Right. And I mean brand in the most positive sense. You know, I'm not saying that DPs are pigeonholed. Their style, maybe. But you know what you're going to get if you're going to get Oh, it. well, yeah, and the brand you know I mean? being the things you've yeah. said. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's like, I, don't, I have no idea what my, how my brand is, but I, I kind of like, I love what I do. I love color. I love... I love true stories. That's my main go-to if I can get, and I love like anything original. I don't like being handed a fourth season of something. I, I draw the line on that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just think that I'm just like photocopying your stuff and that's, I'm not a photocopier. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. And just being, I'm, you know, I, I remember when I was starting up, like I said, I was sleeping on a lot of couches. I never, I turned down probably more stuff than I shot because I really was like disciplined in that way. Like it, it sounds really crazy to turn down work, but especially if you're like broke when I was starting off. But um, I remember like, no, this is stupid. <laughs> like, why would I yeah. do this? It's like, so if you can sort of be disciplined in your approach, and I'm saying this to anyone listening that might be saying, well, I want to be a DP is discipline goes a hell of a long way. Like it, it's just having respect for yourself, you know, Yeah. rather than just doing anything you can to, you know, to sort of do it because it, you, you do wear that on your lapel, you know, it's like, it's, it follows you around a little bit. That's why if you've got like, I'd seen it do like one show a year, then like five, you know, and just keep, mm. like it, you know, and I'd sooner try and focus on one properly than, 
Well, and your your work is like between I wrote it down like between Peaky Blinders, Ratchet, Krypton, and Candy. Like they all, I hey, it's on your website. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, no. Uh, but they're all, you know, in, in great looking shows, but all have their own like Ratchet's a relatively dark story. But we're talking about saturation with candy like that's a very oh, okay. saturated, even kind of uh, I mean, colorful. It's, very, it's, it's acidic is what I'd call it. It's, yeah, it's incredibly expressive. Yeah, I've been lucky because that, like even like I did Hollywood, I did Ratchet, I did Versace, I did Pose. These are all incredibly different genres in a way and different time periods um impeachment was 97 you know and it's so i and they're all for me i'm very proud of the fact that they're all their own voice um they're they're not pastiche either it's not like we're trying to make it look like the 70s it's like your feeling of what it should be you know yeah well that's brian murphy man i mean that's 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 i mean his work is just incredible architecture I mean, I mean architecture because it's literally like the scale of his sets mm. are, are are on par with anything that I've ever sort of seen. And um, when you get to, you know, I always say like when you get more, you have to work less, you know, it, or yes. you stress less. If you're given a, a I mean, Ratchet was an, a, a good example. Like the, the um, I said to people, like, it's almost like if they remade Cuckoo's Nest, but in the Four Seasons Hotel, that's yeah. ratchet, you know, and I, I remember going into the soundstage for the main, uh, the asylum, as it were, and it's a fully functioning asylum. You could walk around, like you could go in there. And I remember doing a little iPhone steady. What was those little iPhone steady cam things? I forget the name of them. Anyway, Zune, whatever. Yeah. But anyway, I was doing a little sort of like I just did a whole wanna around the whole stage, and to me, that's your life is so much easier as a cinematographer to do that rather than being given, like I say, like two thirds of a set where you have to sort of piece things together and work really hard to make it like live and breathe. You know, I've said a bunch of times on this podcast that a lot of times the cinematographer gets a lot of praise for the production designers work. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was, when I was coming up, I did a, you know, obviously like the production designer was doing the best they can, but um, I mean, Piggy Blinders is a good example because Grant, the production designer, um, I think I had a nickname for him was Napoleon. Like he 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 was fearless. Like he 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 was given like this much money, and somehow somehow he managed to make this much set. And yeah. he was ruthless. I mean, he would like paint like he'd paint this entire um, interior gold with gold paint, gold leaf paint. You know, like this is <laughs> so if. You, if you're not in the company of those sort of people that are fearless and really try to bridge that gap and make it great, then your work's good. their work's going to suffer because your work's going to suffer that their work suffers. It's a really, it goes in a vicious right. circle and there's nothing worse than that, you know. Um, it's also communication. Like if you're shooting a TV show or a movie and you're using some kind of process, you should show the costume designers that because they should know that that costume is going to be desaturated like 40%. And are they happy with that, you know? And this comes yeah. on to, like, depth of field, right? Depth of field is a really fascinating topic. Uh, depth of field is me, is shot to shot. I always feel like I, I have shot wide open, but that's only because I want to make something feel compressed and trapped. But I remember an argument I had with another friend, DP. Like I was like, if you put two-thirds of that set out of focus, 
the production designer is really going to have a hard time. I mean, it's not like some, it's not like. It's not going on their reel. <laughs> not going on their reel. And, um, and like, yes, it does look incredibly pretty, but I also learned this really fast on the music videos I shot on film. Uh, I did a bunch of anamorphic ones and I was working with a older focus puller and he would educate me about, he's like, you know, four, four T4 is the sweet spot. Like it's like, it still looks freaking great, you know? Yeah. And now it seems like wide open is like they always go. I mean, I just one five, <laughs> one five. And I just find it really, um, I think a lot, it's, it's strange. Cause I, I have a lot of DP friends that have waves of this. They do it. And it's, I think, and they're constantly in work. Cause I know, cause it's a very beautiful, I mean, look, look at me right now. I mean, this is just a zoom effect, but like if this, if my, this is like two, eight. Yeah, I know. Right. It still looks great. <laughs> you know, Deacons talks about this, you know, exteriors five, six, you know, interiors, two, you know, four. But if this is the shot and this is the apartment and the art department have worked like overnight to make my apartment look great. And look at this. This is what we see. Right. It's, it's crazy, really. Um, but I find Dr. Field is like just a it's a great tool for moments that you need. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's funny because I, I uh, the, the, there's what, like. I did one project where I sort of talked myself into saying, I'm going to shoot this at TA. And then I ended up shooting it a bit wider. And the focus puller was like, this is not what you said. Like, if, you, if you're <laughs> going to tell me you're going to shoot this wide open, just be straight up. I wouldn't be here now, but you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the poor focus pullers, they have to, you know, now everything's all wireless. You know, there's no, I've, I think the last time I saw a tape, a um, tape measure was maybe three years ago, you know? Yeah. And Well, uh, we got the laser measures now too laser measures, but now it's like crystallization measuring. So you have like, Oh, it's sharp. Cause it's green. You know, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is. But, uh, no, depth of field is like, again, I could talk for hours about it, but it's, I think, again, I come from a bit more of a, like, just damn it. Like I love good, solid, a good, solid depth of field and a good, solid grade and a good, solid neck. You know, that's my three things. Yeah. I, uh, I want to shift gears just a little bit because um, while looking through your work, I was very excited because I saw um, the Bells of St. John on your list. And, Doctor uh, Who? Yeah, dude. Really? I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. And oh my uh, God. so wow. I saw that and I was like, great, because I never thought I would ever interview a DP who shot Doctor Who just because, like, you know, they, they get moved around and stuff and whatever. Right. But, yeah. Um, talk to me about that experience because, a, a, it's a great episode. Um, for anyone who, well, I who hasn't it the seen it. I call it the Matrix episode because yeah. they, they download people, right? Is that that? Yeah, like, that's the one. Um, wow. Well, yeah. So this 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 actually was my so my agent said to me, um, I just, uh, he said, "Do you want to do? Do you want to consider doing TV?" Now you got to remember this is two thousand and fourteen, maybe thirteen. Mm. Um, and I was like, hell no. <laughs> I was like, what? No way. I'm not going to shoot. You know, of course, you have to understand that culturally British television, British drama was very safe. You know. Oh, yeah. But I grew up on Doctor Who like many, many people. And I was like, well, he said, well, I've got Doctor Who. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> uh, and I sort of just did it. I just sort of said yes. Because um, I, I just wanted to shoot in the TARDIS. It was a really simple, like, 
that was it. I was, I grew up in the, I grew up watching the TARDIS and I was like, uh, and not just that, they just built a new TARDIS design and I right. was going to be the one to set it up with the gaffer because there's lots of interactive lighting and stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that was the sort of, that was, that was it really. I just, I was just became a eight year old kid again. And I was like, you know, I want to meet Dr. Who, um, and Matt Smith, who was just one of the best, one of the best. And yeah, you, you know, he's an incredibly slender man, but he has the most energy I've ever seen on anybody. I was like, what is this? Well, guy I thought you were going to say the biggest head, biggest head. <laughs> no, no, he's, he's got the most energy. I was like, what is he sniffing? You know, it's like, it's right. like, but um, no, it was great fun, and actually, strangely, that because that I did, I did that, uh, and that happened to be with Colin McCarthy, who is still to this day a great friend. And Colin was the one that was pulled out the hat to do Peaky Blinders. So mm. I I did Doctor Who, and then I did Ripper Street, which was a period. Uh, it's like eighteen hundreds, and it was like. If you imagine a cop show back in the 1800s, so it's all told from the perspective of the police and police morals. It was very moral source. Of, of course, you know, Piggy Blinders is about gangsters. But I did those, that. I did that show. So I'd basically done three hours of television. That was it. Three episodes, and then I did Piggy Blinders. So yeah. it was just luck. I mean, I, I just people can spend 20 years in television and still kind of you know, try to kind of get their hands on the kind of good stuff. Um, right. But, uh, I'm sorry. You've actually, you're the first person that said about that in a long time. And I tell you another story. I, I, when I got my first job here on the Versace, they had to process my visa. And in order to get the visa, you have to go to the embassy and you have to have some kind of, it's a, it's a very short interview, but you have to basically in about 10 minutes convince this 60 year old lady behind the counter who's probably had a bad morning why I should go to America and uh, she says to me she's like this she's like so what do you do and I had to try and explain what a DP is so I thought I'm a cameraman you know so I say cameraman and she says well is there anything that you've done that I would know that would, you know and I, and I was like oh I was like you know done Peaky Blinders and she's like what what's that <laughs> And I panicked and I was like, oh no, she's not, she's not shot. I was like, oh, I've done Doctor Who. And she's like, stamp. Because <laughs> Doctor Who is, is globe, like, people, like everywhere. People in, you know, Timbuktu has watched Doctor Who, you know. And yeah. still to this day, you know, at the Comic Con and all that, you know, it's still like very revered. So I'm glad I got to do one episode though. It's, it's, yeah. it's a little, I'm still proud of it. It's, it looks great. I, I, there was actually two things I wanted to ask about one. Um, were you sort of cognizant or ha- maybe ha- what were the discussions like? Because that, uh, Matt Smith series really started to define the new look of Dr. Who. Yeah. Uh, cause the old one, if, if anyone has not seen oh. Dr. Who, those oh. first three seasons of the reboot, very fun. They do not look great. No, <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, I, the, so yeah, the David Tennant period, it's it's very HD, is yeah. what I call it. I mean, and and uh, and not at twenty four p twenty five, no. very British. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost interlaced HD. I mean, I'm kind. Yeah. Of, I mean, and it's also I'm not the saying Eccleston it looks, stuff. I think is. Yeah, I'm not saying it looks. It's it's a funny thing because I think that yeah, the Matt Smith one. I think it was 
Damien Bromley, who was the DP. And I remember seeing a clip from one of them. I was like, oh my God, this kind of looks kind of, at this stage, cinematic. I was like, this looks pretty cool. And there was something a little bit more earthy about it. And there was less like, I remember, because what this, the long story short is, basically I was working with the gaffer and there was, a, I think it was a Polish DP. He was kind of, he's about 70 years old, but he was like, let's just put a 4K over the camera and let's put like a Congo blue gel on it, you know? And it's like, right. to me, that was like summarized like that language of that period, you know? Whereas the new generation with Matt was definitely, yeah, going down a bit more of an earthy, natural, quasi-cinematic look. Mm. When we arrived, I don't even remember the lenses. I think they were Cooks. But um, it's almost like the the previous shows were shot on like ENG zoom lenses, you know? Right. It, it just, oof. But, um, And yeah. the lighting was hard. Hard. <laughs> Expressive. Yeah. <laughs> it, it definitely, you know, uh, yeah, lots of color, I remember. But it's strange, though, because like the original Doctor Who is going back to, you know, back to the 70s. It was shot on film, right? And well, actually, I say shot on film. The location work was film, and this is the whole the classic Monty Python effect. Monty Python, you know, <laughs> they leave a room and suddenly it looks like a movie. Like, what? They go from sixteen mil to like you know live television, you know. <clears throat> but um, yeah, yeah, Doctor Who. God, glad you brought that up. Yeah, because the uh, oh shit, the not um the most recent uh woman who uh did a great job as the doctor i feel like she got kind of screwed yeah now they have a a black doctor yeah uh he's probably gonna do great too but uh the older gentleman what's uh uh shit what's his name yes um swears a lot in that one show yes he's Uh, my favorite doctor um yes anywho anyway he was my favorite doctor but i really thought they uh I loved the idea of like the damage that this man has experienced over a thousand some odd years. Like Matt Smith did a great job, especially in like the spaceman episodes and stuff like that, where we really started to get into like how time has fucked with him. But then when we, when we got to, uh, I keep trying to say Christopher Plummer. That's not his name. No, no, I'm going to find that up actually. Oh, thank you. Um, Like they, they almost went from like the 20, 20 generation to let's get the, I'm not saying he's old, but let's get the oldest person we can find. Yeah. But with a still, you know, who had, who can crank it to 11 on energy, you know? Yeah. I just um, loved, I loved that they were finally showing that damage, both, both in physically, but also just like how short tempered he was with things. Yeah. Like, he's, how many friends has he lost? <laughs> yeah. Like how many friends has he lost? How many like loves has he had to let go? You know, like how many times? He had to sit in a box for a thousand, like 400 years right. or whatever, you know, like all these things that would fuck somebody up. I'm finally yeah. seeing. But from a cinematography perspective, that show, I think that season is when it really like went, all right, we're going full yeah. cinema on this. And special effects got, you know, damn oh, better. Yeah, way better. Um, Peter Capaldi. Peter Capaldi. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's also a director. He directed a bunch of stuff back in the day. But um, yeah. Famously a uh, bass player for the same band that Craig Ferguson was the singer in. No. They lived in a van together. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Craig Ferguson. Now you're talking. Yeah. I want him back on. uh, on Yeah. Well, someone like him, man or woman, I don't care. I just want someone who, who gets back on late night and turns it into like, Hey, we're all up at 1am. Let's be goofy versus the kind of, 
um, daily show copycats that we're kind of getting now. But um, all right, well, we'll have to wrap this up because I've kept you 20 minutes after. But uh, <laughs> no, that's uh, cool. I'd love to have you back on and we can keep nerding out about Dr. Yeah, yeah. or anything else you've shot because you've got uh, well, a lot of great I'm work off, on you. But. Uh, I'm off doing another one, actually. I'm going to Toronto to shoot a um, – it's uh, called Fellow Travelers. It's from the writer of Philadelphia. So that giving you an oh, immediate, okay. immediate signpost. So it's a uh, McCarthy witch hunt era and uh, 80s aid pandemic kind of – it's kind of spanning. It's one of those – talk about Doctor Who. So it spans yeah. from characters 20 years old to characters – 60 years old so it's uh it's it's a you know it's an interesting one so another yeah. period thing we'll have you we'll have to have you come back and talk about that when you yeah. uh, wrapped mm-hmm. and it's ready to go yeah um but so the way that i i end all these podcasts is by asking the same two questions um first one being what is uh something you've read or maybe a piece of advice that you've been given that has stuck with you over the years that you think is uh kind of, that just keeps bouncing around in your uh, head well, I always go, I think I said it to you earlier, didn't I? I to me, yeah. I, it's like, um, to me, when this DP said this, he said there's good photography, there's bad photography, and there's right the right photography. And I think that just really should make you think about what you're doing. Don't be following Vogue's. Do what is right yeah. for the project. And that can be a bit of a discovery of errors, but just do what's right. Don't do what's good. And, and also don't shoot something for your reel. Don't start like trying to get the biggest ray of light through a window, you know. You're not going to win awards by doing that. You're going to have a shiny reel, but you just do what's right for, for, for whatever you're shooting. Oh, yeah, because that's a dangerous one. You're shooting something and you finally get into a situation where, you, where like the shot looks amazing. Yeah. And it doesn't fit the rest of the show. Yeah. yeah. You'd be damn sure it's on there real. <laughs> yeah. Go to go to minute five and a half. Go to Yeah. Yeah, there it and is. And it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, no, that's that's excellent advice. Uh the second question, a little more fun. Really it's better for movies, but if um Candy was in a double feature, so to speak, let's say everyone had this kind of time. Uh, what would be the other show or, or movie that you would program in? Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, perfect. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could picture Napoleon Dynamite living down the road. You know, in Hell that, yeah. In that very, uh, we didn't talk that much about Candy, but it's it's a quite a quirky show. It's a dark, dark story. It's a true story. And it's a very gruesome story, but it's about suburbia. You know, small town suburbia and how... Um, the pressures and conformity of being a housewife trapped in your family. Da, da. But anyway, from a aesthetic point of view, yeah, Napoleon Dynamite. Perfect. Yeah, that because it's always fun to, you know, speaking of uh, kind of interest, you wouldn't normally think those two uh, next to each other. No, no, everyone raises their eyebrows at that. But actually, when they think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. You know, because I to me, it wasn't on the nose. It wasn't a reference that was like, oh, it just kind of came, it evolved because I was just looking at the mood boards and the costume designs and I was like, and the big glasses and the hair. And if you think about it, Napoleon Dynamite and Candy, yeah. I mean, Napoleon could be her son. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was a sort of a quirky kind of side to Candy. So I think, I think it's a perfect match culturally, but um, not an obvious one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Well, and I love those answers, too, because it's like you can you could pick a uh, film that was exactly the same kind of same vibe or the ones that are more fun are like the contrast. Uh, Speaking to Jeff, when when Jeff was on to talk about um, uh, being the Ricardos, I asked him that question and he goes, Alien versus Predator. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I, yeah. I I think references are uh, are fun, I, but I'd never like to be too on the nose. And I definitely don't like to be kind of like following trends, you know, especially I'm very hesitant to reference anything in the last 10 years if I can. Yeah. I, I think, you know. Well, and that's, that keeps you, that's like, you know, right now I'm seeing weird, weirdly enough, mini DV. The kids are really into mini DV right now. Yeah. Uh, camera prices. My friend found a bunch of tapes and he was like, Hey man, can I use your XL two? I was going to buy a mini DV camera on eBay. I thought it was going to be like 20 bucks and they're like 800. Yeah. Cause people are stockpiling tapes and shooting stuff. Cause they want whatever that I, I assume it's some version of nostalgia, but it's, you know, Oh yeah. I, it's, I remember it's the, fashion. Yeah. The, the Sony, High eight cameras, yeah, the little high eight tapes. I remember those. Yeah, I yeah. think somewhere in, in an attic in my house, I have like hundreds. Yeah, somehow that's the look now with the with the youths. Youths, <laughs> uh, and and I don't I don't know why. I guess it's just from their from their childhood, you know. That's but to to your point about not referencing anything that's uh, you know ten years or newer. Um, I think that keeps you safely in the uh like reference category and not the trend chasing as you're saying yeah yeah like i said earlier don't don't follow anything that is in any way to make it feel um like for your own sake you know it's like i want to can i reference top gun in this can i reference raise the lost ark you know i mean i i've ticked a few boxes myself i have to say i mean i've been lucky you know we've done the godfather in fact one show i did raise the lost ark uh, and candy is Napoleon Dynamite, which is very unusual, but they're nice. I just don't think you should rest on them or lean against them too right. much. You know, there is yeah. still room for originality. I think it's a little tiny, <laughs> little tiny crack in the door, but you can do it. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks again, man. This this is a, a great conversation. I can't wait to have you back on uh, yeah. for your next right. project. Yeah. Cool. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the FNR Matbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>